Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> we looked last week at the first four verses of this chapter about the sevenfold perfection of Christ and how he is fitted to be the perfect revealer of the Father. And the Hebrew writer turns in this next section to speaking about why Christ is a better revealer of the Father than the angels are. We'll start at verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And... You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, but they will, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatness and dignity of the angels. But we thank and praise you far more for the greatness and surpassing, revealing power of your Son, the one who is the exact imprint of your nature, the ray of your glory. Lord, show him to us today. Help us to see the majesty and glory, the greatness, the beauty, and the power of Christ. We thank you for this chapter that mines the riches of Scripture to tell us about the glory of your Son. Open our hearts, open my mouth, that I might speak boldly and accurately concerning Jesus, the Lamb of God. And help us all to see his glory and marvel at it. We pray for true worship today in Jesus' name. Amen. We have to ask, why the angels? Why does the Hebrew writer spend so much effort constructing this chain of seven quotations asserting the supremacy of Christ over angels? I think all of us in here would say, well, absolutely, Jesus is greater than angels. That's not a live issue. That's not a question that I woke up this morning wondering about. In certain sectors, though, in certain corners, at certain times, angels have been a big deal. In certain parts of Christianity and Judaism, and even Islam to this day, angels are regarded as incredibly important. In the mainstream, though, angels are not that interesting. In fact, the other side is usually gets more attention. I saw a shirt at the rec center last week that said, men become demons. 
And I thought, who on earth would want to wear that shirt? But <laughs> demons are more popular than angels these days. Obviously, Christ is superior to demons too, as the Gospels show by him kicking demons out left and right, performing exorcism after exorcism all over Galilee and Judea. But anyway, Christ is superior to angels, and the reason the author dives into that issue first is because it is the conventional wisdom of his day. The first century uh, believed, or in general, people in the first century believed in angels as mediators between God and man. That there is not this big gap from the highest God to the man in the street. But rather, the highest God reveals himself to the next highest God, to the next highest God, and through this series of lesser gods, through demigods, down through angels, to the common man. I have no contact with Zeus. I hear what I need to hear about the divine through the mediation of a succession of angels that moves from the highest angel down to the lowest angel who then deposits it to me. That was the conventional wisdom. The writer is saying, essentially, you might think, first century Christian, that a good deal of what we know about God has been transmitted to us through the mediation of angels. And therefore, that angels are definitely and undoubtedly superior to human beings in God's plan of redemption. Well, have I got news for you. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. He's taking on the conventional wisdom of his day that saw angels as very important in bringing the knowledge of the divine to the ordinary human person. Now, the Hebrew writer was so successful that we don't even understand the idea that he's addressing anymore. Who believes that angels mediate the knowledge of the divine? Only a few people in the weirdest corners of Kabbalistical mysticism. But that's true today. That was not true in the first century. Regardless of whether we overvalue angels, we can come to rightly value angels and to rightly value Christ by paying attention to what the writer tells us about the comparison between Christ as revealer of the Father and angels as revealer of the Father. The seven statements God makes about his son that the Hebrew writer quotes combine to show us that angels are servants, but Christ is son, heir, and ruler. Angels are servants. Christ is son, heir, and ruler. So let's dig into the seven statements of the Son's supremacy. The first one comes from Psalm 2. To which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So we read Psalm 2 a few moments ago. In it, Christ describes God's response to the rage of the nations. Nations rage. They imagine a vain thing. They imagine that they can throw off the rule of the Almighty. Let us break their bands and cast their cords away from us. God's first response is a belly laugh. Ha, ha, ha. That doesn't pass the giggle test. There is no way that the nations of the earth will successfully throw off the rule of God's anointed. And then God's second response when he's finished laughing is to say, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And who is the king? 
Well, the king speaks and says, The father told me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What is this day? This day on which the son is begotten. There's various answers out there, but two two come to the fore as the most true. In one sense, every day is the day of the son's begetting. We call this the eternal generation of the son. Among us, begetting is a one and done action. But for God, who is outside of time, there is not a one and done. It's an ongoing eternal reality. The son always proceeds forth from the father. The father did not beget the son at some point and then say, all right, I'm done with that. Next item. Rather, the son is always being begotten by the father. At every moment, the father is giving all of himself to his son. And so, whatever day this psalm is quoted on, we can say, today I have begotten you. That means right now the Father is begetting the Son. Every day, this is true. In another sense, I think the day that's in view, in most of these quotations, is the day of Christ's exaltation. The day when He enters into heaven and sits on the throne next to the Father. Now, it's not the case that the Son was unbegotten prior to that time, but it is the case, rather, that at that moment of exaltation, the begottenness of the Son became most apparent. All the movements in Christ's exaltation are a cumulative declaration to the world that this rejected man is truly the Son and anointed one of God the Father. The babe was born in Bethlehem. His identity was veiled. right? The still unspeaking and unspoken word. But when the risen king entered the courts of heaven and sat down enthroned next to his father on the throne, his identity could not have been clearer. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. On that day, more than any other day, when the father announces the eternal generation of the son, it's clear to the onlooking heaven that this truly is the Son of the Father. Furthermore, when the writer announces, when the writer asks, to what angel did God ever say, you are my Son? He's hinting that God said, you are my Son, to someone who didn't necessarily look like God's Son. He's not saying... Well, God never said it to an angel. God never said it to a worm. God never said it to a star or a deer. But He did say it to one creature. And that one, a man. And a man enters heaven. And God says to the man, who is obviously human, not obviously divine, but obviously human, you are my son. And that is where this is going, as we'll see in chapter 2. Christ is superior to the angels as Son of God, says chapter 1. But chapter 2 adds Christ is superior to the angels as Son of Man. And this seems to be part of what was the problem right at the beginning when Satan rebelled. He was not interested in being subject to a man. 
It's one thing to worship God. It's another thing to serve a lesser being. Someone made of dust. The angels, that angel, Lucifer, had a problem with that. So we'll get to that over the next few weeks. But right away, by quoting from Psalm 2, when the Father announces, You are my Son. The courts of heaven notice this. God is pointing out, is calling out Jesus, the man, as his Son. And again, 2 Samuel 7, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now this is a statement in its Old Testament context that was made by God through Nathan the prophet speaking to David. David decides, all right, I'm done with my wars. I think I've got a little bit of surplus in the treasury. I will build a temple. God, what do you think of that? Nathan the prophet comes to him with God's answer to that question and says, you're a man of blood. You cannot build the temple. Anyone who's physically and psychologically capable of giving a hundred Philistine foreskins as a bride price is a man of blood. Right there. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And God says, you're not fitted to build my temple. Instead, one who comes from your loins, he will build me a house, and I will build him a house. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Now God is speaking about Solomon in one respect. Yes, Solomon, the great temple builder, he builds a house for God. But in another sense, when he says, I will build him a house, He's not just speaking of Solomon, he's speaking of Christ as the Son for whom he would build a permanent house eternal in the heavens. So this statement that in one sense is about Solomon as the type is about Christ as the anti-type. God promises, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. God acted as a father to Solomon, yes. But the Hebrew writer says, Ultimately, this verse is about Jesus, the one to whom God is Father. So God calls the Messiah his son at least once. The son of David is the son of God. David, you will have a son, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, occasionally in the Old Testament, the angels are called sons of God. God asked Job, where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? But though angels in the plural are called sons of God, never is a particular angel called out of the mass and told, I will be your father, you will be my son. The angels are plural sons of God. There is no singular son of God among the angels, as there is among men. Well, verse 6, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, now that word world appears only one other time in Hebrews. It's not cosmos, it's oikumene, that is the world as inhabited household. And the word appears 
again in the next chapter where it refers to the world to come. Uh, he did not put the world to come in subjection to the angels. Chapter 2, verse 5. That world to come seems to be a reference to the heavenly realm. And thus, the scene in verse 6, well, there goes the pressure tank again. Something is wrong with the plumbing in this building, and our landlords will get to it when they get to it. So when he brings the firstborn into the heavenly realm, and Christ enters heaven at the moment of his exaltation, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And to say a reference once again to the scene in the first verse, or rather in verse 3, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ purified sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the scene conjured by the Hebrew writer. Hard to worship the Lord and listen to plumbing problems. What What is the writer saying? He's taking us into heaven at the moment when Christ Right? This is where the story picks up in the Gospels end. We see Jesus ascending into heaven. What happened next? Well, it's right here in Hebrews 1. He enters the courts of heaven and the Father says, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And then adds, Let all the angels of God worship Him. Jesus doesn't slip in the back door of heaven while all the angels are in the break room watching TV. He does not do that. No, he comes in and it's an event. The angels are assembled in festal gathering. They're ready to celebrate. They're ready to worship him. And he comes in the door to the Father saying, This is my Son. Let all the angels of God worship him. Pretty amazing sight. All the massed ranks of heaven, there in glory, bowing before Christ with their faces covered, as we see them in Isaiah chapter 6. All the angels of God worship Him. This is a quote from Psalm 97. Let all God's angels worship Him, or bow down to Him, all gods. Depending on how you read it. They all fall on their faces and sing King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever and ever. Hallelujah. Just as we see it in the book of Revelation. This is the moment of the Son's coronation. Now Psalm 97 is a prayer in which the psalmist is talking to God and says, Lord, help me. And he calls on the angels To worship God. The heavens declare His righteousness. All the people see His glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship Him, all you gods. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So this command, worship Him, all you gods, is a statement to the angels 
telling them that Christ is their superior. Don't just respect him, worship him. Angels are servants in heaven, serving the Son of God. Of the angels, he says, verse 7, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, once again, there's two different ways to translate this. It might be making the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Or it could be the other way around. He makes his messengers winds and his ministers a flaming fire. Servants and ministers are the same thing. Ministry just means service. So, here in the U.S., right, we have departments, government departments. We have the United States Department of Agriculture. The British counterpart to that is the MAF, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Food. And they have ministries. What is that? A government department that serves, supposedly, that serves the interests of the executive or the government in power in order to implement policy. Well, God makes his angels ministers, not ministers of the gospel who stand in front of a church and preach, but rather servants who do his will. And it even seems to suggest that God could take a flame of fire and turn that into an angel if one was not available. He could take a rushing wind and turn that into an angel to serve him if an angel is not forthcoming. He can clothe his angels in wind and fire, giving them visible but still airy shapes with which to manifest themselves to our physical eyes. What is the point? Angels are servants. God can raise up from these stones more angels. Angels do what God tells them. They serve him. They are ministers or servants. Wind, fire, angel, God is in charge of them all. Now onward to Psalm 45, verse 8. To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, the angel is described as a servant, but Christ is addressed as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Did you catch that? It's right there in Psalm 45. The Son is addressed as God, and He is also addressed as having a God. God, you have a God. How does that make sense? Only if you understand Jesus as the Son of God, who is like His Father in everything, who is perfectly divine, and yet also the Son of God the Father, who is His God as well as his father. Christ rules on an eternal throne. He wields a scepter of righteousness. He only does what is right. He hates lawlessness and loves righteousness. And because he passed the test, hating wickedness and loving righteousness to the bitter end of death on a cross, he now has joy dripping off him. God has given him more joy than anyone else ever has had. God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. We think of Christ as the man of sorrows. We say that. There's Michelangelo's Pieta 
and all these other artworks that portray him in misery or in death. But Psalm 45, Hebrews 1, tells us to think of Christ now as the gladdest monarch, the gladdest man the world has ever seen. There is no gladder man in the courts of heaven itself. Do you know Christ as this joyful one? The day of his coming into heaven and being acclaimed and worshipped by the angels was not a day where he was in misery and said, oh, I'm still the man of sorrows. They're all hiding their faces from me. No, he rejoices in his mission being accomplished. Well, the writer rushes onward to Psalm 102, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. In this psalm, the psalmist bemoans his transience and pain. My days pass away like smoke. Everything hurts, the psalmist says. But then he finds comfort in the endurance of God's kingdom. And that's what he ends with. The whole world will pass away. The heavens will perish, but you remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. The Son of God is not only worshipped by angels, but does the divine work of creation. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is said to the Son, according to verse 8 and verse 10. How? Well, whatever the Father does, the whole Trinity does. We talked about this last week. The works of the Trinity are undivided. So if the Father created the world, if the Father laid the foundation and built the heavens, so did the Son. And thus the psalmist is saying this to the Son. The Son does God's work of creation. He does God's work of consummation, winding up the world bringing about the end of all things. The Son of God is not only worshipped by angels, but does the divine work of creation and consummation that no angel has ever dreamed of doing. So the writer concludes with the ultimate quote from Psalm 110, to which angel has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is the writer's favorite psalm. He quotes it over and over and over because it so clearly addresses Christ as the one who is seated on the throne at God's right hand and for whom God is conquering. The writer wants us to pause and adore the mighty Son of God enthroned at His Father's right hand, ruler of all creation. Don't be His enemy. You will lose. Be his subject. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. Remember how violent Psalm 110 is? He will crush the head over the wide earth. He will split the rulers of many countries. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And the psalmist is saying, essentially, if the scripture says it one time, fine, it's an accident. If it says it seven times, it's not an accident. The Bible is saturated with references to the supremacy of Christ over angels. Reject the conventional wisdom that says angels mediate knowledge from God down to us. That's not true. The Son is the revealer 
of the Father. And in these last days, God has spoken by His Son. So what's the overall point? How does he sum it up? Verse 14, They're all ministering spirits sent forth to serve. However great the angels are in their personal being and power, and they are greater than we can possibly imagine, they are still servants. That is their role. If an angel angel manifested himself in this room at this moment, we would all fall on our faces and say, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. That's all we would be able to think of. We would be terrified out of our minds by the sight of this powerful, mighty being. But the writer says, as great and majestic as the angels are, they are servants. And in our era, we think of this most easily when it comes to the machine. You or I can climb into a 400-ton truck. How much bigger is that thing than any of us? If I weigh 200 pounds and it weighs 400 tons, it is many, many orders of magnitude larger than I am. 4,000 times my size. If I'm doing that calculation correctly. 2,000 is 10 times 200, and then it's 400 of those, 4,000 times my size. And I get in there and turn the key or punch the button or whatever I do, and it does exactly what I tell it. We're used to the giant machine being our servant. God says, not only is the giant machine that you built your servant, but this magnificent, glorious, spiritual being is your servant. He's my servant, and I send him out to do errands for you. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are our servants. As Paul says, don't you know that we will judge angels? It's a pretty incredible thought. What sort of service do the angels do? Well, there's two words that the author uses in this verse that sum it up. The words are so important that they have come over into English as cognates or as derivatives from the original Greek. The first word is liturgical. You've probably heard that word relating to the worship of God. That church has a very liturgical service, we say. That is, they have a set order of worship with certain readings and hymns and prayers and so on. That is the word that sin, they are translated ministering in your text. Are they not all ministering spirits? The Greek word is liturgical. Are they not all liturgical spirits? This tells us that one of the angel's most important duties relates to worship and the public organized praise and honor of God. And of course, that is primarily how we see them employed when they're mentioned in Scripture. Or that is one of the major things we see. They're in the throne room, worshiping and praising God. Paul seems to suggest in 1 Corinthians that the angels are present right here in our worship and in every human worship service. That's why a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head for the sake of the angels, he tells us. As if to imply that the angels are here watching So the angels are liturgical spirits. Their job is to worship God. There are other 
form of worship is the second word translated probably serve or minister in your text. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve? And that word is diaconal. So diaconal in English refers to the service of a deacon. But in Greek, the meaning is broader, just any service. A deacon is someone who serves in Greek. The angels perform this physical service to protect and care for the people of God. And the author shows absolutely no interest in what that service might be. He drops it and moves on immediately. Uh, My uncle was in a car wreck some years ago. His car ran off the road or something like that. And his first thought was to get his children out of the car, which he did. And two men were there to help him. He didn't see them arrive. He didn't see them leave. And of course, he was rather focused on the car wreck. But he uh, has told me that he wonders to this day whether those two men were angels. Because suddenly, when he needed help, there were two men there helping him unload his children out of the car. Anyway, right, there's different stories, angels among us. You've probably heard those. There's even radio and TV shows about it. What do angels do? Well, they probably do some things like that to perform their diaconal service. But again, the writer doesn't talk about what that might be. His point is not to focus on any particular thing that an angel has ever done, but to say, in general, angels are servants. They're the butlers in the kingdom of God. Who do they serve? Well, they serve God. They're ministering spirits. They serve God. They do what He wants. He makes His angels wins. But they serve God for our sake. Angels spoke to Joseph in a dream, right? Warning him, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Angels came and spoke to Daniel and possibly to the other prophets. The angels serve, in part at least, by revealing God's word to us. So where is this going? Well, we'll talk about this more in chapter 2, but it's going to Jesus as man ruling angels. Christ is greater than angels as Son of God, chapter 1, and as Son of Man, chapter 2. So what's the application? What do we do with this information that Jesus is greater than angels? One obvious application is stop trying to get messages from angels. Hopefully you weren't doing that, but if you're interested in trying to get an angel to tell you something, stop it. That is not the main job of the angel. You have a better source of information. You have the Son who has revealed Himself to you in the pages of His Word. And therefore, the writer gives us an application immediately, the next verse, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. The main application, pay attention. Listen to what Christ has told you. If the angelic message was this good, how much better is the message from Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the liturgical and diaconal service of the angels. We praise you that they are better worshipers than us, that they cry holy, 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 day and night. They never stop. Father, we ask that you would help us to do your will as the angels do, that we would be your servants
like they are. Father, we praise You that not only are they Your servants, but that You have revealed us, revealed Yourself to us with something better, with Your Son. Lord, help us to see His glory, to delight in Him, and above all, to listen to Him. We pray these things in His name. Amen.